When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, September 30th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. Welcome to you from bookriot.com, the last day of September. Indeed it is. Not sure if that really means anything. I guess the, the new releases are coming hot and heavy. We told you in this show, in, in a regular episode, that it was going to be a chock-a-block fall and then in our fall preview draft which you could go get at bookriot.com slash fall draft it's a pay what you will special episode no ads drm free available through thanksgiving we went through the new releases we thought the general leader would be most in, most interested in and indeed we took one off the board because we both wanted it and it was kind of uninteresting to even have it on the board colson whitehead's harlem shuffle came out well, a couple weeks ago i can't remember what the release date yeah, was but so. We have both read it, and we will be talking about it for a few minutes uh, in one of the segments of the show today. But go check out bookriot.com slash falldraft if you haven't already. Votes are open. You can vote for a Rebecca or I's basket of picks. You can vote however you'd like, but the general idea is which basket of books the general reader would be most interested in. Some people and their responses to us have been like, I'm not sure if this is me or the general reader. It's fine. You can vote for, for an official for whatever reason you want. There's no wrong way to vote. Um unless it's for Rebecca, in which case, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you uh, at this point, but we're, we're still taking and tallying drafts, uh, votes there, and also feedback about the Gumroad experience. That's the platform we're using to disseminate this episode, and I think we've learned a lot, and we can talk yes. more about what we've learned and what we might or may not try in the future once um, Thanksgiving rolls around and we're done with this particular experiment there. Uh, let's do a quick break, and then we got a couple other things to do uh, real quick. Rebecca, we have another job announcement. Do you want to do you want to take a crack at this? What is this yes. gig, and who is it good for, and why might they like it? We are hiring a temporary full time editorial operations assistant uh, because our full time staff member currently is going on parental leave. So we're looking for someone who can start in December and work through the first quarter plus a little time of twenty twenty two. Our editorial ops folks are the people who make sure that all the systems that we use to make the site and the podcasts and the newsletters and all the things that we do. They make sure that those go. So uh, they upload the files for our podcasts every That's week right. and they make sure that our show notes are correct and they make sure that posts appear correctly on the site before they're scheduled to publish. It's a lot of quality control kinds of things. If you are a detail oriented person, uh, this would be great for you. It doesn't require a lot of previous experience or specialty in any particular systems. Um, if you know some things about books, that would probably be a benefit for some of the work that you do in this position and keeping an eye out on like the balance of titles that appear in a post and making sure that things meet Book Riot's uh, inclusivity standards, that kind of stuff. So you can get all of the details for this position by going to bookriot.com slash join hyphen us and we'll have a link in the show notes. Scroll down and you'll see a few other positions where applications will have closed by the time you hear this episode. This application will be open for, um, I think, through October 11th. So you have a little 
little time if you are someone that you know would be a good fit. Um, folks can live in any of our jurisdictions and do this job, and that includes uh, Portland, Oregon, New York, or anywhere in the state of Oregon, the state of New mm-hmm. York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Illinois, North Carolina, or British uh, I almost said British Vancouver, British Columbia. <laughs> um, and you do need to live in one of those jurisdictions uh, by the time that the position would begin. Uh, so lots of flexibility there. It can be work from home or if you are in Portland, Oregon, you can have access to our office there if that's a thing that works out um, for you. All the information that you need is included on that listing. Um, and again, the link will be in the show notes or you can go to bookriot.com slash join hyphen us. Um, I should caveat, neither of us is involved in the hiring for this process. So nope. like, we can't help you if you have questions <laughs> about it. All the information that you need is there. Um, but folks who listen to this show, know some things about books and you might know someone who's a good fit. So go check that out. MacArthur genius award, um, time. I, I, this is one I don't, I don't remember that it comes out at the end of September. I think it does generally come out this time of year and famously for, for Rebecca and I, at least amongst us here, we had a discussion one time about if you could have all the the plaudits, right? (laughs) What, what order do you list them and say, if you're Colson Whitehead, (laughs) right? Where do you list your various things? By acclamation, we and others who emailed us said, yes, the Nobel comes first. I'm sorry, Colson, not yet, not yet. <laughs> but then from there, we said, I think we put MacArthur first, and then you can take your pick of Pulitzer National Book Award from there. Um, that's kind of how it goes. In Colson Whitehead's bio on the back flap, it goes like this. Number one New York Times bestselling author, then wow. two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Now, we didn't think about the two-timiness. Right. If you got a two of them, because it's so rare. <laughs> it is. That's not something you should assume when you're doing the mental exercise of what order yeah. would you put these in. And which also, if, if for the Nickel Boys and the Underground Round, which also won the National Book Award, a recipient mm-hmm. of the MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships. He lives in New York City. So the MacArthur was penultimate placement there, um, which I think is interesting. I, I hadn't the wrinkle of, you've got two Pulitzers, and one of those books also won the National Book Award. I think from a stylistic point of view, you've got to jam that all up in there. I think so, too. So anyway, uh, MacArthur Genius Awards. I think you have a a favorite here. I have a a favorite here that I had forgotten to ban Danielle Aracon for a long time. Um, Who who do you want to shout out for the MacArthur's this year? Well, I want to shout out Hanif Abdurraqib. I'm so... So excited to see him here. I've loved his poetry and his book earlier this year, A Little Devil in America, which is about black performance um, through mostly music, but all kinds of art. And then his own understanding of his life and parts of his life as a, a kind of black performance as well. It was just, it's phenomenal. It's so beautifully written. It was in my favorites of favorite books of the first half of the year and I know it will appear on my end of the year list as well just super excited to see him recognized I remember loving At Night We Walk in Circles by Daniel Arcon, which came out in 2013 I just pulled it up on Amazon to like refresh my memory Book Riot Best Books of 2013, which wow. at that point, probably you and I were writing that, that yeah. whole, po- like, that could have been all of <laughs> like, our picks. I was uh, recognizing his name and I couldn't remember the title of the book. So good job yeah. for you. And, and I haven't, re- I haven't read anything since. It's one of those, and this is one of the things that's hard about covering books and, re- and being a reader, especially of like literary fiction, where you have a five year, you can have a five year 
um, gap between books relatively, mm-hmm. that's not even really a, a super long gap as these things goes, especially if an author that's new to you that doesn't get a huge amount of publicity or whatever it might be. I'd lost track. So A, I remembered I like this book. I like this author. And there are two books that have happened since that I can now go back and read and and see. That's five honey grand for Alarcon, which I think could probably use it, where no shouts to Ibram um, Kendi. He's doing fine, though. Ken, Kendi's, Kendi's, he's got the scratch. And I'm glad he got it. But it's when I was like, is that what the MacArthur? Like, this is the one where it's a seed money. Like, it's a lot of money for an author. It's not like the National Book Award, which is like 10K, which, mm-hmm. again, you're going to make sales and nothing. Like, this is really like a five-year kind of endowment thing. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm not, I don't begrudge anyone anything, but Alarcon is exactly the kind of author. I'm not sure that he's making six figures a year off his literary novels. Um, this one was this kind of dreamlike thing where the main character has, you know, family trouble, relationship trouble. He joins the, he joins a touring company of a play and then has this, all this interesting stuff about identity and narrative and where things are. This is not the kind of book that sells a whole bunch of copies, is all right. I'm saying, generally speaking. I wish it would, but I'm a pragmatist, and I've been doing this long enough to know that this feels to me like this is the kind of person I want winning $500,000 MacArthur Genius Award. Kendi, he's got like an endowed profession at Boston University, has sold a million copies, fine. That, of course, deserves it from a absolute MacArthur sense, but in terms of like the return on investment, I'm not sure that, you know that's really going to, is he going to do something different than he was going to do anyway at mm. this point? Where I think for all these authors are, but that's a small uh, piece there. A lot of playwrights, a lot of other kinds of writers, but in terms of like people who write books, which is our domain here, um, those are the three names that, that really jumped out to me. Congratulations to them all. I do recommend A Night We Walk in Circles. What was the name of the book um, that you're trying to get me to read? Uh, gosh, about black performance. What's oh, the name a of little it? devil in America. A little devil in America. Yeah, I, I do want to check that. It is wonderful. At I wonder. Some point. Listening to you talk about that, I wonder if that fact, if the impact of the money and financial support on the per, the recipient's life is a thing that the MacArthur Committee or whoever it is considers. I, I I thought at one point it was. Now maybe that's changed, and maybe I've misrem I've I've maybe misremembered it. Um, well, here's a, here's the website I just pulled up. The mm. foundation is not a reward for past accomplishment, but rather an investment in a person's originally insight and potential. So, okay. I mean, sure, an investment in in Kendi. I guess I think I think of that in terms of like seed money startup. This is where I think about it, right? Whereas this thing would not. I feel like Kendi's buying stock in Amazon, in Apple or Amazon. Mm. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of the thing. Like maybe you'll get returns on it, but you're not actually helping it grow as much, whereas Alicorn, I think you are. Now, I could be wrong about these people's finances and how this is going to change their life. Maybe for all of them, it's a life-changing thing. Maybe Alarcon's like super famous and has a really plum gig at Columbia or something like that, getting paid $200,000 a year. But my sense of where they are relative to the larger literary and publishing, especially landscape, from whence book money flows, mm-hmm. is that Kendi sold millions of copies over the last couple of years about my anti-racist, <laughs> which I'm sure the royalties are fine. Alarcon... We like the book, best book of ours for 2013, and totally forgot about him. 
So there you go. Those are the polls I'm looking at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that fair? It totally, yeah, it totally does. I was just curious. I couldn't remember if we knew if that was mm-hmm. a factor in it. And looking at this list that is predominantly, like, basically no one is getting famous as a playwright. Ba- almost yep. nobody ever gets rich as a playwright. Or if you're Abdurraqib, like, he's got a great music podcast. He's a poet. He writes about black art and I think has a dedicated audience. I would love to see him break out, but that's the kind of work that he's also teaching. Like, it's hard. Mm-hmm to Mm -hmm. focus on your art if you also have to be teaching and you know doing a regular job which most writers do need to do most artists do need to do so it's six hundred and twenty five thousand dollars so to get oh that's right inflation since we first started talking about they raised the they raised the 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 nest egg there that's a that's a couple to several years of you know freedom to just work Mm -hmm. on your art, right. um, if that's the way that you want to do it. And I do think that that's a huge investment in somebody um, like the folks that we're talking about. I would I'd, I would love to see. We've gotten wonderful things from Hanif Abdurraqib and from Daniel Aracone um, in whatever their like, current life setups have been. So like, what do we get if you unlock more of their time? I think about it that way for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's cool. Congratulations to them. It's also good. I always find, uh, I think we once said, like, if you're looking, now I'm not on social in the way that I once was. If you're looking for new follows to... Uh, yes. To, to, to repopulate, to refresh, rejuvenate your, your various grams and talks, um, this might be a good place to do it. I'm not sure uh, <laughs> Hanif Abdurraqib is on TikTok. He's um, on Instagram. If he is, we should follow them. But that's these are people, especially from walks of life and disciplines you don't follow as closely as, say, if you're listening to a podcast about books that comes out every week, you know, you can look at sciences and visual arts and dance mm-hmm. and um, those are the kinds of fields that I, I'm orthogonally interested in, but I'm not dedicated to in the way I am about books and even technology or something like that. But I am interested to see what is coming out. Um, and this is a really good sort of discovery vehicle for That's that. Um, also, again, like you said, probably the value of having this on your CV is there's there's a dollar. You could probably assign a do- dollar value to it as well. So it has, mm. uh, endure, it has enduring value, just like Whitehead putting it in the... Uh, Jack a copy of his his bio there. Um, we're going to do one more sort of book story this week, and then we're going to do Harlem Shuffle. And then next week is the 10 years of Book Riot being live uh, as a site that people could visit and read about books and reading. Um, and we thought we'd spend a few minutes talking about what was, what, what was, what is, what's changed, think about the future a little bit, and have a little fun uh, with a quick retrospective. But let's do another sponsor break here before that. One of our one of our favorite ongoing questions um, is the relationship of things getting adapted to the success of that adaptation, and then what it does for and with book sales accordingly. Publishers Lunch had a very nice piece. I had seen Netflix released um, its list of its most popular TV series and movies, mm-hmm. and they. They broke them down by series and and movies, and then basically what number of accounts had actually viewed them to some degree. And, and Netflix definition of a view is kind of weird. I think it's like two minutes. Someone and if someone from that account has watched at least two minutes of this. Yeah. Which I don't know about you, Rebecca, but if someone's like, "Did you watch Bridgerton?" and you're like, "Yeah," and like, "How much did you watch?" and you said, "Oh, two and a half minutes," I'd be like, "No, you did not watch Bridgerton." But I don't know what to say about that. They can yeah. pick their metrics. We know what they are. Yeah, I I have lots of quibbles with that as the metric for viewers of a thing. And it's, it's viewers within the first 28 days. Is it within the first 28 days of release? Yeah, the first 28 days of release is what their numbers are here. So 
that's a bad metric. <laughs> <laughs> but like, here's the thing. They're all bad metrics, so it's the relativeness we can kind of maybe salvage from it, right? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. May, maybe? Like, I don't know that... I, I don't know that it is that the relativeness is even that useful like mm. just to pull from do i know it, that there is much difference between 82 million people watching at least 2 minutes of bridgerton and 58 million people watching at least 2 minutes of emily in paris i'd rather know how many people finished an episode and finished mm. the season yeah like that is how I would measure success. I would love to hear someone at Netflix explain why two minutes counts as a view. Like this is just, it's categorically a bad metric. It's unhelpful. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but this is what we have. And we're going to try to <laughs> make take it, a purse out it. of a sow's ear here a little bit. And I think the real, the real um, thing that I think the publisher's lunch did that was useful is then go look at sales of the rel- of the the source material and see if you could tell anything and the big takeaway for me which i guess if you would have asked me to rank them i maybe would have come up with it but i never thought about this by myself but a book series has a bigger lift for sales of the underlying book than the movies do and i guess the reason for that could be tripartite one is that people just have more time mm. with the series, so there's kind of a longer window for them to be interested in reading the book. Two is that there typically is more than one book in a series, so you finish season one, you can get a jump on finding out what happens yeah. um, to read season two. And then in the case of some a book, a single book that's been turned into a series, I think there's just a lot more time for there to be a delta between the source material and the thing that results from it. So if you want, if you're the kind of person that likes, say, what did they change? Is it really like this? Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. In the case of Queen's Gambit, for example, that's a single book by Walter Trevis that they turned into was that eight episodes, ten episodes, something like that. Yeah, something like that. That is a lot of material. There's a lot of potential coverage and overlap, but also a lot of potential divergence. So in a sort of a putting the pieces together kind of way, I think that makes that can make a series more interesting as well from a, I'm going to go back and read this thing. Any other thoughts on that spread before we look at some of the specific titles, Rebecca, are you, were you surprised? Would would you have thought it it was stone cold obvious that series would sell better um, than the movies for, for the underlying material? I wouldn't have thought it was stone cold obvious. I think I would have thought I would have gone, what was most popular in book form and assumed that, the most popular books would be would then lead right. to the most popular adaptations, which would then feed back to even more right. book sales. Um, right. Which the, on the films one, Bird Box was number one. Two hundred and eighty-two mm-hmm. million people watched at least two minutes of it. Um, oh no, two hundred eighty-two million view hours. Yeah, they also they gave us two different metrics. There's one for number of accounts and then viewable hours. So that's kind of what you're, and again, okay. it largely lines up. You can sort of see that some people abandon some stuff. They tried it and abandoned it. Like, for example, Lupin Part 1 is number two on the number of accounts that watched it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't appear in the top 10 of the number of hours watched for a series, which suggests to me that maybe a lot of people abandoned it. On the other hand, I'm not sure how long Lupin was. So maybe there's only three yeah. episodes as opposed to Bridgerton, which I think had 10. Right. I just realized um, I that know. there were two graphs in this yeah, document that yeah, we're looking yeah. at. It's a little <laughs> that's, confusing. That's what's it is a little live confusing. Here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think I would have gone that way, um, thinking that it, the source material would have been a bigger impact on what was popular rather than that just books would have 
sold more when it was a TV series, but I can get there. And I think the reasons that you listed are the ones I would have come to as well, that there's more time with the characters. If it ends on a cliffhanger or like Bridgerton season one is basically based on one of the Bridgerton books. And there are many, if you like those characters, you can pick up the books and find out what happens next or get ahead. Um, That makes sense to me in in the retrospect. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing I was going to look at, especially here that was interesting to me, is the Queen's Gambit. I think of these, this is the one that was the most um, dormant, right? It's been out for Mm -hmm. decades. And it sold 140,000 print copies since the series premiered in October of last year. I could have believed a lot more than that. I think there's a couple of things that are working against it. One is, I didn't know for a while that it was based on a book. Ah. It's not, you know, that's not. it didn't have much name recommendation. So Mm -hmm. people even think to go look for something like that. Is pretty tough. Um, the other one I think that I was really interested in here is the I Heard You Paint Houses tie-in edition has a lifetime print. That's a lifetime print sales of 127. That's a book that has a different name than The Irishman. Um, mm. It's also been out for a long time. I thought the book was great, by the way. I like the book way better than I like the film. The film was 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 good, but I really found the, the audio version of I Heard You Paint Houses extremely compelling. Um, the other thing that's mentioned here is that ebook sales for Netflix hits mm-hmm. have a different shape than just regular hits. There's more the the percentage of ebooks sold is higher. And I don't know why that would be necessarily. I guess if you're watching something on Netflix, you have a higher baseline affinity for technology. Maybe you're more comfortable going to get it. It's also you can go get it right then. Um, maybe it's harder for some of these books they sold out or they're one, you know, if you're watching Queen's Gambit right away, were there movie or film Netflix tie-in editions available right then? I don't know. Other Mm. thing that's a confounding factor here, a lot of these things came out during pandemic when ebook sales across the board were higher. So I'm not sure how much of that is durable, but I did find that interesting that we're just talking about print sales. And then for some of these two to, you know, 20 to 40% more than normal, percent of the total sales would be from ebook. Nothing about audiobooks here, which I thought was interesting and notable. That is interesting. I'm never quite sure about how much access BookScan has to um, uh, audiobook sales. Amazon does give BookScan some ebook and print sales. I'm not sure how miserly they are with the real the real um, chokehold they have on audiobook sales because auto, you think ebook sales are dominated by Amazon, um, talk to your neighbor about Audible sales uh, at this point. So I thought that was interesting as as well. I'm not sure there's much to take from this, honestly. I think it's interesting that none of these books where you were like, oh boy, this is is a book with a huge fan base and they're going to be super excited to see it in, in film. These are things that were hits not because of being a book first, I don't think. I think you might be wrong about Bridgerton on that tip that the Julia Quinn fandom and the romance fandom were pretty stoked about the Bridgerton release. I think they might be stoked, but like if we had come up with a list of a hundred book properties to, to make into Netflix adaptations last year, was Bridgerton in our top hundred? I don't think so. Would have been in our top hundred. It wouldn't have been in mine. Would have been in yours. Would have been in anybody's. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe the romance fans, but that's what I'm saying. Like almost none of these, I would think, again, I think it speaks to my 
the adaptation being good matters. Like the the, yeah, it the influence of the adaptation, the, the source material being popular to the popularity of the thing that comes out of it is completely divorced at this point. I don't think it has bears any relationship to it, frankly. I think that's fair. Huh. I can't think of a book that's sold enough to matter. Really, at this point. Dune, yeah, I guess, true. but it's not Netflix. Or like if Netflix did a uh, dramatized series based on educated yeah right <laughs> i mean even something like pick i mean where the crawdads sing no. right the, the biggest crossover whatever hit that we don't particularly like but there's no denying that it's like a mainstream as mainstream of a commercial fiction hit as you're gonna see if it was a mediocre netflix adaptation it's not on this list. It's yeah, just not enough true. people. And it's just not enough people. It's a movie that's going to come out next year, I think. So we'll get to see how it does at the box office. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the real surprise to me on just the list, and I, I, I think it's an adaptation of a graphic novel, maybe, is Sweet Tooth Season 1, 60 million number of accounts. Like, it's right there with The Queen's mm-hmm. Gambit, like only 2 million fewer up there with Tiger King. I haven't heard people talking about Sweet Tooth in the same way I heard people talking about other stuff. So that was a real yeah. That was a real surprise. I haven't either. I saw it at the top of maybe one of Mashable's. Mashable does a weekly yeah. newsletter about what to watch and sort of TV and movie commentary. And I saw it there and somebody writing about it being kind of delightful and fun and certainly seems like the vibe folks are looking for in this mm-hmm. time of the world. But I have, whatever circles that's happening in, it's not my circle. So I was surprised to see that too. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's take a, another quick break. I don't know. I think it's just something I do now. M- maybe most readers are doing this now since we are in the age of you, you're probably going to win more bets you're going to lose if you assume something's going to be ad- adapted into something at some point. Uh-huh. But Harlem Shuffle may be the most adaptation-friendly of all the Whitehead books I've ever read. You want to? Is that Ooh. fair to say to you? What do you think about that as a, a hypothesis at this moment in time? And maybe we can build out from your agreement or disagreement with that claim. I was thinking along similar lines. I think it's very adaptation-friendly. It's certainly friendlier than The Underground Railroad was. Yes, um, right. Both for like how complex that story is and that that's surrealism that's hard to convey and really difficult subject matter. Yes. Sort of ditto for if they did the Nickel Boys. I, I think maybe because I'm fresh off of a Sag Harbor reread, I mm. could see a wonderful summer movie um, about based on Sag Harbor, but I think Harlem Shuffle would be more fun to yeah. watch. And yeah. why so? Why, 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 why is this, does it, you know, we can maybe compare notes about why we think it's more fun, why but, more, more adaptable to a visual medium. I think Harlem in the late fifties and early sixties yeah. is such a rich location, such a rich setting for a story. This character is complex. The story, the book builds out the lives of the ensemble characters mm-hmm. as well um, in a way that you could really easily see how those folks would show up on screen. And I know at least the two of us share a deep love of a heist story. Yes. And you get plot baby. Of them here. Plot, plot baby. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's right. And in weird way, it's sort of three books in one. Like you could mm-hmm. make three seasons out of this. It's, it is presented as a single novel, but there's, what, three major sections, right, Rebecca? Yep. And mm-hmm. I, we, we don't want to spoil it too much because I know people haven't really read it. So we're going to talk around it and what we liked about it and maybe a couple of little details that might be worth talking about. But you could easily break this. The, the, in a way, I was expecting the first section to be the whole of the book, actually. Yeah. Um, 
I heard Whitehead on, I think, the Ezra Klein show talking about Mm -hmm. that he pictured these sort of three different stories. But basically it was it it is like three novellas put together in a book. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. The the central character is Ray Carney, who is a we don't get ages for almost anyone in this book, but he is. He's like late 20s, early 30s. There's a moment where it refers to 11 years ago when he was 18. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I was picturing Carney like in his 40s up until this moment. But I guess he's 29 or 30. Well, it also takes place over time. And Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe over the course of a decade-ish or so, the three novellas or the three sections really happy. It could be a little bit less than that. So we spend a lot of time in it. So I think that's another thing that lends itself to. You could spread this out over one or multiple seasons of Harlem Shuffle Mm -hmm. if you wanted to. And Whitehead himself has said, or you told me, I haven't seen the quote directly, so I'm I'm trusting you here, (laughs) that he's going to return to not just this world, but even this character, possibly, yes. in, in a follow-up book, which is new under the sun for Whitehead, to, to double It down. is. Yeah, he had said, I think, that same Ezra Klein interview, which, folks, if you're interested in Colson Whitehead, I'll find that for find the show notes. that episode. It's a wonderful listen. He's a good interview and, and thoughtful and fun. Um, that usually when he's done with a book, he's like a done and over thinking about it. And it's interesting to see that coming off of Underground Railroad and the Nickel Boys and really writing about... like deep and painful experiences for his characters that are defined by their race to move into something that Harlem Shuffle certainly still explores in very big defining ways, race and class and structure and white supremacy, but through the lens of a heist story and a character who is like, wants to be a good guy. Um, You can, I could, I can totally get the appeal like coming off of those two really heavy books. You're like, I just want to, let's do something else. Let's write a heist book. It seems like he was, you could, and I kind of wish I didn't know any of that because mm. I, I hope I would have come to the same observation that it feels like he's having fun with yeah. this book. Like it just the way, the amount of detail, the way he's describing things, the overall tone is fun. He's reveling in getting yes. to spend time in this particular time and location. And he cares about the details of the furniture and the books and the clothes and the music and the technology and the politics and the specifics of one particular week in Harlem after a um, a protest that turns into a riot about a, I know this is going to sound very unusual, a, a black kid being shot by cops for no reason. Um, but the stuff that he really, he really dives in and the world building Whitehead's wonderful about world yes. building, and I think that's one thing that's maybe underrated because he does it so easily, is moving between genres means that you're good at world building in each of those genres. And what makes a great heist experience is the minutia, the logistics, the how do you get from here to there, and how do you overcome that obstacle, and how do you get into the safe, and what do you do about the doorman, and what does that mean about where are you on the block, and time of day, and the whole thing is so intricate's not the wrong word, but it's not it's not the right word, but I'm not sure it's the wrong yeah, word either. It's, I think it, it's tough to describe because he makes it look so effortless. Yeah, this is right. not reading, you know, 40 page chapters about whaling boats in Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. It's it, it does just sort of flow out that you can picture what this block looks like and what Carney's furniture store looks like. And I love that no matter what room Carney is in or how much danger he's in, he's like noticing the furniture right. and, yes. and, and noticing sort of what the furniture says about the occupant of that room and where they sit in the class structure or how fancy they are, what impression they're trying 
to give off like just and it took me I think half the book to even notice that that's a thing Whitehead was doing because it just kept happening it was like oh right he's got this character who's a furniture salesman he thinks about these things and now he's in this room and he's by the way he's noticed the chairs in every room that he's been on it just happens so seamlessly of course yeah that's a great point it's like that you and I we you know if we go let's say we visited someone's house and I don't know. It was a weird situation where it was awkward and they had a bunch of books. We'd right. still notice the books. We'd still look at them, yes. even, even though we're not there for the books, right? Mm-hmm, totally. It makes so much sense for the character, but it just it blends in. And it's the kind of thing that, ma- it, that divides the good authors from the great ones, I think. Right. There's a version of this book that's a Harlem heist story that even has the same like outline characters, but that misses that. I think richness is the word I'm going to come back to that richness of detail about the world that they live in and also about the world their internal worlds and we get so much of that with Carney as well we don't spend time in his head in a like internal dialogue kind of way but we do really know what he's thinking and how he feels about his place in the world and what what this tension is that exists for him between, you know, it's some, like I might be broke, but I ain't crooked or like he was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked. Like this, this space that exists between how he wants to think of himself and what he's doing is really fascinating. It's been a while since I've read like an Elmore Leonard or uh, a Walter Mosley or something like that. Cause it, it, it's related to those genres and those kinds of writers. And I think I was, if I were to describe what makes it different than that, because I actually didn't know, was it going to be more heist forward, plot forward? And it certainly has that, but it feels to me like the heist, the underworld, the criminal comes in and goings, how are we going to get to the fence and offload the merch and how are we going to do with the cop that comes around? That's, that's scaffolding for Whitehead spending time in this world. That, yeah. That's not the point of it, though I think it reads very well. But it doesn't read as page-turnery as a thriller, mystery, heist kind of crime novel. Because it is a crime novel, but it it's resplendent in luxuriating in the world, and it's using the heist, and there is one heist, and then there's something else that happens later, and, and using the lens of how the world is put together to spend time in the world. And one example that it's, I was trying to think of, like, how can I, how can I describe this? And there's one moment where there's a photo shoot that happens. And if you <laughs> if you know anything about the book, you know what I'm talking about. And if you ever go to read the book, you'll know which photo shoot I'm talking about. And in the course of that photo shoot, and it's a high stakes moment, in, in a way, the most dangerous moment in a lot of ways of the book uh-huh. that happens, um, where Carney is really putting himself the most out there. And Whitehead takes time to give a two-thirds of a page backstory <laughs> to an armoire. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> right? While this is, and it's it's about, you know, this armoire is so nice that a prince from Portugal took it on his honeymoon to Brazil. And even though his wife turned out to be barren, they still had a wonderful time on it during their short lives. Like the armoire got a backstory, Rebecca. <laughs> I know. It's wonderful. This, this filigreed diving in is where the fun is. That's where this is. The high stuff is good, I think. Mm-hmm. I think to a certain degree, I've... I've I kind of feel like I've seen it all when it comes to these sort of low stakes heist courts sorts of things. Like I was thinking about No Sudden Move, the new Soderbergh movie that came out. Oh, this yeah. A very fine one. But the thing that distinguishes a very fine one from this is that it's doing something different, which is this is the world. This is time travel. 
This is what books can do. It's historical fiction, weirdly, it in is. its own kind of way. But books do this and stories can do this in a way that really other mediums can't. Though I think a presented film one where you see the clothes and you see the cars and you see the buildings. Like that's one cool thing about much of Harlem and much of New York, though less true of Paris and London for reasons that I think are talked about explicitly in the book is you still have these old apartment buildings at 528 Riverside Drive. You can go look at them if you want to. You can still get the the past is there um, to be available. But yeah, I think the, the, the teeming Harlem ecosystem um, and the economies and how it works is where it really looks like his brain is fired, is firing on, on all cylinders. Yeah, I think that's right. It's like a heist story, but really the heist story is just the the dressing on right. everything that this is about these people who live in a particular place and time. And for the central characters, it's about the forces that have described them into being crooked in some right. way how how and why they these people have ended up being crooks and in the positions that they're in and some of those have to do with family a lot of them have to do with social structure and what the way that whitehead is looking at the classes that exist even within a racial group like carney's wife elizabeth comes from strivers row her mm -hmm. parents are you know upper crusty they belong to the dumas club and carney's skin is too dark to be let in and elizabeth's parents think that he's not good enough for her and also that you know she shouldn't have become a travel agent she should have been a doctor and colson whitehead gives carney the thought that elizabeth's mother cooked most things the way cooked the way she did most things with a healthy sprinkling of spite and you just you get so much there you know exactly who that woman is once you know that she belongs to a fancy club she's disappointed in her daughter thinks the daughter's husband isn't good enough and she's just filled with spite and a terrible cook uh, and like one of the sort of strong men in the heist group pepper gets described as um he did not go to church he was his own sermon like this is this is not what you're getting if you just no. transcribe like Ocean's Eleven no. into 1960s Harlem. No. no, he he does save little um, drops of turns of phrases and descriptions. Um, dipshittery was one of my favorite. Dip just a single was... word that was like, <laughs> I know exactly what that means. How has someone not invented that word before? Right. Um, to <laughs> to nominalize the ongoing practice of being a dipshit um, right. is really fascinating <laughs> stuff. I got. I, I just wrote down a bunch of favorite lines. It was a beautiful night to be out in the city and up to no good. Um, mm. There's a person that does Carney dirty. Carney's going to take out some revenge, and he describes him as the little man was the white system hidden behind a black mask. Humiliation was his currency. Yeah, and just it's just so sharp. Which of course, Colson Whitehead is so sharp. But this did not feel like reading, as you were saying, like other thrillers or other heist stories. Like I think the most recent kind of heisty thing I read was S.A. Crosby's yeah. new book. And that's a really different, like that is a fast paced edge of your seat, hold your breath. How are they going to get out of this moment thing? And there's a lot of character and a lot of setting that happens there too. But that really is like a plot baby plot kind of book. Right. Um, and in Harlem Shuffle, I think the plot just really serves to give these fascinating fun to be with characters, something to do. Yeah. I, one of, one of the fun pieces too, is I was thinking about the title as I always mm -hmm. do, like close reading one word. Uh -huh. Um, the shuffle is, you know, it's a dance, but also it's also what you do with the cards, right. Mm -hmm. To rearrange them. And there's an element here of, 
there's a multi-layered, I'm not sure how to describe it, metaphor, or maybe a motif, I guess is maybe the best way of thinking of it. Actually, Ames was just asking me yesterday to describe a motif, and I can hmm. use this. The idea of things changing, but things staying the same is littered throughout this book. It is, there's generationally, you know, the parents become the kids, and they inherit some of, but not all, and they take their own spin on it. There is the evolution, the changing of the city itself, but the underlying thing is there is racial inequality, right? They, you know, people got moved out of, black people got moved out of Seneca Village to make Central Park, and then they had to move uptown. That, and the, because the Irish and the Italians moved out, and then people are slowly, especially after the time of this book, Harlem starts to, to become a more white neighborhood. Um, and gentrification. This happened especially when I lived in these neighborhoods, when, you know, 20 years ago now, unbelievably, 21 years ago now I moved to New York. Um, but the underlying thing was a graft, a bentness of the city and how it works and also how American society is structured. Mm -hmm. Because if you're fundamentally unfair, that means everything is crooked. And it's not a book about the quote unquote struggle, except that it's always already right. laced throughout in ways that I think are as craftsmanlike and artisanal as I've seen here, where it's it does it has moments where it's like about that, but then it comes back and just becomes part of the daily life, and they're not subscribed by racial uh, enmity and oppression, and yet it's always there, and it surfaces up, and they have moments of domestic tranquility and bliss, but they cannot forget, nor are they ever untouched. And what's another thing I think that's interesting too, so that shuffleness of like you're just moving the pieces around. Right, It doesn't ever change. The same 52 cards are in the deck, but they appear in different orders, and you get dealt a different hand at different times. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. And there's a reference to three-card Monty at, yes. one, at one point in the book, and that sort of we're hiding things and moving it around and just creating an illusion to try to hide this thing from you that you have a one in three chance of identifying. <laughs> like there's right. um, That feels really true and resonant throughout the story of what the characters are doing to each other, but I think also what Carney is doing with himself. And there is a, there's a moment where Whitehead really hangs a lantern on it and says he'd spent so much time trying to keep one half of himself separate from the other half. And now they were set to collide, but then they'd already shared an office, didn't they? He'd been running a con mm -hmm. on himself. And yeah, there's night Carney and day Carney that one of the interesting, uh -huh. like, that that relates to that is he he starts doing the dorve is what they call it, but this idea of the that used to be I guess apparently and Whitehead goes out of his way to say this was a real thing and I've heard yeah. of this too it seems mm -hmm. it seems wild to live this way but you'd go to bed before electricity at dusk you'd sleep for a while you'd wake up at like one and you'd stay up for a few hours and you'd go back to bed and and then you'd wake up you know at sunlight and this intermediate time was used for all sorts of weird stuff. Like the, the detail here is Benjamin Frank, Frank would use it to walk around the house naked in paint. I'm like, what? what? Okay, <laughs> sure. That's fine. And then Carney uses it to sort of, that's his time to be, I don't know, crooked or think about his crookedness so that with his, his wife and his kids and his business, he could try to stay on the straight and narrow. But I think the thing that we learn through the book that Whitehead is trying to relay and that Carney ultimately learns is everybody a little crooked in this world because you are part of a crooked system. You cannot, as they say, hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Um, and that's definitely true here. Even you, even if you look at the character sort of that he's trying to protect the most, well, his wife, Elizabeth, works for a 
a travel agency called Black Star, which name is a reference to Marcus Garvey's you know cruise lines that was trying to mm-hmm. facilitate black people moving back to Africa. But her travel agency has a business because it specializes in getting tour travel accommodation set up for black people to travel places and know it's safe. Basically, like if you took the green book and made it into a travel agency, that's what she did. She's not she's not crooked herself, but she has a business because of crookedness. Right. Right. And so do the cops. And so do the fences. And so do the bartenders. And so do the prostitutes. And so do the taxi drivers. And so do the bellboys at the Hotel Teresa. And all along, even the people trying to play it the most straight are warped by the society in which they live. So is anyone really straight? And is anyone really crooked? And I think Whitehead is playing with this idea of like, is Carney a crook, I think is an interesting one. According to our I guess, like very top-down structured morals, of course, because he's quote-unquote breaking the law. But the laws presented here is not something you want to follow. So where are you? I thought the word choice of crooked and bent throughout was really interesting. And it's Whitehead, so it has to be intentional that Carney isn't thinking about himself, or if he is, we don't know it as readers, as a criminal. And none of these characters really talk about themselves as bad guys or as you know being on the wrong side of the law there's this real deep sense for them that they some of them that they want to be good but you can't as you're saying possibly be totally straight in a system that doesn't actually allow for that mm-hmm. everybody has it has to be crooked in some way to survive in the system and they're also so disadvantaged that the only way to like try to even the playing field for themselves is to be crooked in some capacity and i just thought that that was a really interesting way to think about like things end up crooked because something pushes them out of straightness or there's an environment in which they can't grow straight and so they become bent and that's so different than the intent that criminality carries with it or the desire or the joy like this is a really different kind of story of a fundamentally like good guy doing bad things than like a breaking bad is where it's a a guy who thinks of himself as good but who does bad things and then really takes deep delight in discovering Mm -hmm. that he can be bad and celebrates the criminality in himself and it's for carney really something that it's like He's containing these multitudes and he doesn't quite know how to have space for this truth that he wants to think of himself as a good person and he feels like he's doing the things that he should be doing in his life. And also life is pushing him into this crookedness. Yeah, he'd sort of prefer to play it straight if he could, but the Mm -hmm. realities of if you want to open a furniture store and run it in the world that Whitehead is describing here, you can't because you have to pay off the cops and you Mm got to pay off the local gangsters. And once you're doing that, you're outside the law. You you just are. You you are participating in one half of a bribe. And that's not to say that all deeds are equally treated here because there are some things that characters do that is outside the pale of that's the game, right? You can break the rules of the game here. And that's Mm -hmm. true of, of many sort of crime novels, crime worlds, cr- crime demimons of different kinds. But there's there are things that you can do that, and there's one thing that happens to Carney, that someone breaks the rules of the quote-unquote yes. game, and he really responds to that unfairness. Like, he, he mm-hmm. is, you know, like they say, a, a, a thief with a code is one of, I think, everyone's kind of favorite tropes is like the, 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 the honorable thief or the, or the criminal that lives to some kind of a morality that if people stay with inside it, who really gets all that hurt, even though, you know, might be stealing radios. Yeah. But there are things you can do here that the the community and the and the criminal world will say, nope, that's not okay. And you can't double cross someone. Right. You're really not supposed to beat up women 
in a way, you know, because you can do it for a while, but that once that fissure breaks, that's a place where people pile on. And then morally, you're not supposed to leave your kids. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that's, un- you, you, you know, Carney's dad basically leaves him and the world presents that as you're not supposed to leave your kids. Like right. that's not within the world of the game. You can maybe run a three Monty, three card Monty game upstairs or run a billiard hall that also runs numbers, but you need to stay with your kids and you need to stay with your family and you can't beat the crap out of them. Like that's not cool. Right. Yeah. And even the thing that Carney, the thing that's done to Carney that is outside of what he'll accept in terms of how the game works that he seeks some revenge for that revenge results in a bunch of other people who have been existing outside the code being taken down so it it still kind of comes back around as just in its way that he exposed he got his revenge and he exposed these other things that were that were happening that were reinforcing the system and i think that that's the kind of the line these characters are Mm -hmm. walking is that they're all forced into to some degree these behaviors by a crooked system and some of them are just like carney is one of them who are just getting along inside the system because existing outside the system does not seem to be an option that's available to them they can't actually do that and others are enjoying the benefits of the crookedness so much that they are replicating and reifying the system and that's what carney pushes back against and what some of the other characters are pushing back against as well yeah um any other thoughts Uh, to do more would be to get into real plot points and i think we want to save some time for people but where do you put on your whitehead um hierarchy do you have an do you have an initial slotting of in recency bias is tough with these yeah recency bias is tough i think it's like mid it's in the middle this is in the like juicy middle of the whitehead hierarchy for me i think um and I now mean, that we've I mean, now that we've read it, I think I'm having second thoughts about having taken it off the board from the mm-hmm. draft. Like it's a great, this is a great and really enjoyable read. But in terms of like the best book of the year, I think this will be in my favorites and enjoyable experiences. But not uh, this didn't like blow the doors off in the way that my previous experiences with Whitehead have. It took me. It took me a little while to get into it, honestly, a, a fifty or so pages to acclimate myself to what he was doing and how it was different from maybe what I was expecting. Certainly from a, a heist novel, which I kind of came into mm-hmm. it. I guess my prior was Deacon King Kong, which wasn't quite so rococo and baroque and in depth, which I really liked. Yeah. Um, probably from a readerly sort of pleasure per sentence or per paragraph. Or I guess momentum, reading momentum, I guess is a better way to describe it. Deacon King Kong is a bit of a faster read. I think Harlem Shuffle is 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 a little bit more accomplished. I think it's going to take some time to me to wrestle with the real achievement here because there's so much yeah. about the... I mean, one moment which is weird is I was like, I was into my like my second or third reading session. I was like, you know what? I should listen to some some jazz from the era. Like, so I was like, oh, maybe Parker, maybe Coltrane. I was like... Uh, maybe Clifford Brown and Max Rose. Oh, that's too smooth. I need something a little bit later, a little more frenetic. So I'm like, pick up Charlie Mingus. I put up, Ming- I put on Mingus Ah uh, Um, and then five pages later, a character oh, puts on yeah. Mingus Ah uh, Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> I like sort of blew me away. I was like, again, there's not that many draft picks, and it's not that deep of a cut. But Charlie Mingus is not Coltrane, and Charlie Parker is. So I was like, had a little bit of that like existential vertigo um, nice. of listening to the same thing, and I think I also have such a. 
I know this area. Again, I didn't, mm-hmm. I'm, I didn't grow up in Harlem in 1954, and I'm not even a black person who lived in Harlem when I was around in Morningside Heights and working at 125th and Broadway, but I know these streets. And that's one thing I was quite, how legible is like, there's a lot of directions in this street versus that street, and you turn the corner here, and it's different. And like, I know some of this, and I was still like, wait, where am I? And how is this different? It's still 60 years ago. But that's sort of, I think it will reward if you care about detail. Yes. I'm sure everything here is right. I'm sure all the specifics here are right about you turn the corner here and you end up here. I'm sure that building at 528 Riverside is exactly as Whitehead describes it even today. So there's a sort of embeddedness and lived inness mm-hmm. um, that I think is great. But I don't think it's going to be the kind of thing where I'm going to recommend it to my dad, which I will, but then he's not going to go turn around and recommend it to his friends. Is that, yeah. you know, you hear what I'm throwing down there a little bit? I think that's right. I think this is one of those books that's. Not all the way into like, this is for a writer's writer or yeah. reader's reader, but it's a little closer to that than to the broadly like Swiss Army recommendable yeah. kind of book. And even like, even a pretty good Colson Whitehead book is better than almost everything else. So, Yeah, I think it's, I would probably still pick it of what I read Matrix over the weekend. And if I'm thinking about for myself, for my favorite books of the year, they do such different things is what what you love about books, right? They can be Mm -hmm. so different and be about the same size and of of writers of about the same age. And they're so different. It's hard to compare, but I think that the matrix I was, or the matrix, see, that's the other problem I'm having. It's like, I'm thinking of Keanu and we're really talking about uh, 12th (laughs) century nuns. Um, They're so different, but I was so surprised by matrix. And I think at its most transcendent, it's more transcendent. But Harlem Shuffle is not about transcendence. So what am I doing comparing? You know, that's mm-hmm. it's one of those old one of those old saws. So um, really great stuff. Uh, Whitehead, yeah. what do you want to say that we haven't I said know. already? I just I wholeheartedly recommend it. Still, everybody pick this up. I will be glad to read another Ray Carney Whitehead book. Yes, but I will be sad it's not something else though. I know. I I'll be interested in when Colson Whitehead gets tired of writing this Harlem heist story. Yeah. What comes next? <laughs> Could be like um, John Banville or someone who writes, you know, kind of does a TikTok thing. Well, they can be working on two books at the same time. Maybe there's like seven Ray Carney novels Mm. and they interleave with the other Whitehead exploratory canon, but they don't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily compete with each other for his writing time uh, or or energies or resources. All right. Um, Do we want to do thoughts? We're running long now, all of a sudden. Do we want to save that or do we want to do it now? Oh, well, I'm going to be gone for a, a couple of weeks, so, and no, I have thoughts. You can thoughts. come back. Let's do, it. Let's do it when you come back. We've been an <laughs> right. hour. We've been doing okay. this an hour. All right. I'll go on vacation. I'll not think about Book Riot. Yeah, that's all right. Um, podcast at bookriot.com if you want to hear or find the show notes. Um, I'm sorry. That's email. What am I doing? I'm looking at my notes and getting confused. <laughs> podcast at bookriot.com is our email address. Bookride.com slash fall draft is our 2021 fall draft preview episode. You can find show notes to this and all black episodes of the Book Ride podcast at bookride.com slash listen. I'm not sure who's going to be on with me next week. I don't think I figured out. Who, oh, it's going to be Danica. Oh, wonderful. Danica. Excellent. I think now that you said that, I did remember. I totally remember it's going to be Danica Ellis. <laughs> um, and we can maybe I'll get her to talk to me about book talk because she among us oh, yes. has done the most book talking. Um, and book talk meaning T O K. Not T-A-L. The Grams and the Talks, Jeff. Yeah, the Grams and the Talks show title. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, have a great break. We'll talk about Thank Book Riot you. writ large on your return. Thank you.